0: first month our operatives will have you under constant supervision. You may see some of them all of the time. You may see all of them some of the time. But believe me, Mr. Morrison, you'll never see all of them all of the time. <music> Hello and welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your definitely not work-in-progress host, Harv, because I'm already perfect, and you will listen to me because I'm an authority. Don't like it? Fine, I'm going to strap a pair of fucking headphones to your ears and force you to listen, just like that guy had his eyes pinned open and was forced to watch movies in a Clockwork Orange. So, and that's that's how we roll here, at narratively speaking. You just don't have a choice. And hopefully by now you've cottoned on that we like to have a bit of uh, a bit of fun here when we do the intro, and maybe in some way reflect the topic that we're going to be addressing during the podcast. And today we're addressing the mythos, if you will, of Big Brother. And when I say mythos, I don't mean to say it's not true. But what I'm talking about here is the story of Big Brother and how it functions, whether or not it's true, because we've talked in the past about how uh, the stories that we believe in don't have to be true to have an effect on how we behave and how our consciousness functions. And I saw an interesting example of this, or at least something that reminded me of it uh, a couple of weeks ago when uh, we moved into this new place where we're living in a new suburb now, and you know, it has this reputation for being like the most dangerous suburb or one of the most dangerous suburbs you know, in the Melbourne area. Um, and it's the main reason why I couldn't convince my girlfriend to move here the first time around Because she had friends who said, oh no, don't move there. The crime rate's out of control and blah, 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 and all of this. And I was pretty suspicious about that particular story. And now that we've moved here, I think we're both learning pretty quickly that that whole thing is really just bullshit and um, possibly a little bit racist because it is a quite ethnically diverse area. um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's out to kill each other. But whether it's true or not, I noticed at the train station here that there's this slightly weird signage. There's a picture of two police people and underneath it, they've got the slogan, see you at six o'clock. And it got me thinking, you know, what an interesting way to encourage people to just behave themselves. You know, like they're not saying we're watching you now. They're not saying we're going to bloody arrest you if you step out of line. Uh, They're just saying, you know, we'll be around maybe a bit later. It's not creepy. We'll just be watching. Always watching. And uh, it's funny because they put a time on it though. So I guess, you know, you would commit all your crime before six o'clock then, wouldn't you? But of course, they've got the cameras there. So it doesn't really matter. The police, when they arrive at six o'clock, can just watch the footage of whatever you did. And I must admit, the first time I saw it, it did give me kind of a feeling of safety. You know, it made me think, oh, you know, boys in blue are on the job. Or should I say boys and girls in blue? Or men and women? I can't keep up with the political correct stuff. Um, Gender is a spectrum. So um, people in blue, it just doesn't have a ring to it, guys. Can we get some alliteration going? A little assonance? Fuck. But yeah, it made me feel like, uh, yeah, well, that's good. I'm in a dangerous suburb, so they're telling me this should keep things under control. Don't even need to call the cops if something goes wrong. You know, just wait. They'll be here at six, which doesn't help if you if your crime happens early. You know, at, say, two o'clock, you're waiting four hours. But but it's still, they'll, turn, they'll show up eventually, maybe wake you up with some smelling salts and say, hey, what happened? Where's your iPad? But the point is, it could have gone either way, couldn't it? I mean, I could interpret it to say, oh, yeah, good, there's help at hand, but... The other side of it is it could give me the impression that there is a risk. So raise your hand if you know uh, the novel 1984 by George Orwell and leave your hand raised if you've actually read it. Okay, now put your hands down because I can't even fucking see that. So this is a podcast. It's not how it works. But I would suspect that a lot of people would know what 1984 is and generally think that they know the contents of that novel despite having not actually read it. I'm in that category, so of course I assume everybody else is. And why is it that we know about a book that we've never read? Why is it that that becomes part of the public consciousness? I mean, that book is like the the Bible of conspiracy theorists, and uh, you hear them say very often things like, uh, that book isn't fiction. It's an instruction manual. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the case. I have no idea under what circumstances George Orwell wrote the book. But either do the conspiracy theorists who say that. So we'll never know. But what we do know is that there was a lot of technology in that book uh, that predicted things that came true. The year wasn't exactly accurate, though, was it? I remember in 1984, there were still people rocking uh, MC Hammer parachute pants. so. Obviously, technology hadn't come that far, but if you trace back the technology of the Echelon program and so on, you can find really old pictures of computers that honestly look like they come out of, I don't know, um, you know, a bad Hollywood movie with a fifteen dollar budget or something. You know, they got these little flashy lights on them and stuff, like the the front of Darth Vader. But uh, yeah, the Echelon program is something that's quite. Supposedly well documented. I mean, people know about it. They made a movie about it, maybe a couple of movies. I'm not sure, but there was definitely one called The Echelon Conspiracy, I think, or something like that. Um, and it's something that everybody knows about. You know, this big computer system that supposedly filters all of the internet and phone traffic of the world, looking for keywords and trying to find a reason to, you know, set off alarms or whatever it does. And alert the authorities to espionage or terrorism or whatever it is that they're trying to guard us against these days. Um, I think it's ourselves now, is it? Uh, we're, the, we're the big threat to ourselves now. They've they've come full circle there. Um, yeah, but um, oh, but still the Russians, still the Russians. Gotta fear those those Russians, those ruskies, don't you? So all of these vague concepts, these vague sort of story elements, you know, plot devices in my brain, uh, things I don't really know a lot about, but I've been told pretty clearly to fear and be concerned about, uh, they all sort of conspire to create this overall Big Brother narrative. And I guess it really sort of escalated when we had the Edward Snowden leaks Because that was when it really got covered by the mainstream media and people weren't able to just call them, uh, you know, crazy conspiracy theorists anymore um, because it was being reported by supposedly respectable sources. Yes, back then people trusted the mainstream media. Oh, the fond memories like MC Hammer parachute pants. But I want to reel off... A couple of names here and uh, let me know if you recognize any of them. Perry Felwock, Russ Tice, Mark Klein, William Binney, Thomas Tam, Thomas Drake. Did you recognize any of those names? Because they all leaked similar stuff to Edward Snowden. The only difference is they didn't get the media coverage. And I guess what I'm suggesting here is not that Edward Snowden wasn't a hero and he didn't make great sacrifices because I believe he probably did. Uh, It's more that the media coverage is the differential between whether or not the story gets out and enters the collective consciousness or whether it remains a secret. So maybe at that point, the agenda at play had changed and, uh, you know, the surveillance state wanted to come out of the closet, so to speak, and let us know it was there. But why would it do that? Well, let's have a look at the story first and how it affects people. And, you know, I think you, you have basically three categories of people, three reactions or classes of reactions uh, to the knowledge of the surveillance state. The first was probably the most common, which was to say quite proudly, mind you, Well, I have nothing to hide, so I'm not really worried about the surveillance state. Now, let's look at why you might say that. First of all, you're kind of exerting superiority over whoever you're telling. You know, it's bragging in a sense. I live such a clean life. Nothing to brag about in my opinion. I'd much rather get down and dirty and experience all that life has to offer. But hey, that's just me. Um, It does make people feel special, I guess, in a way. Um, a little bit superior, and it also makes them feel like they're part of a group. Uh, But it is a form of virtue signaling. And, you know, we've talked about virtue signaling before. It seems to be uh, the more I think about it, in fact, since the first episode where we talked about it, um, the more I just see it as defining very much how human behavior manifests. The second way People reacted to this would be the way the government reacted, or people who work for the government, um, they'd say, Well, hey, of course we're surveilling you. How else are we supposed to keep you safe? Okay, yeah, if I worked for the government, I guess I'd buy right into that as well to justify my um, position. But um, what are the characteristics of that? Why would you be saying that? Well, first of all, you're protecting others, so it makes you feel special, maybe a little bit superior. Maybe above the law, because the surveillance is still illegal, or at least immoral. Um, And it makes you part of a group. And wasn't that the same list of things that we had from the first point? Well, let's move to the third one. I'm sure it won't be exactly the same again. Uh, The third group is the people like me, who said... Oh, this is all part of the, you know, the bringing in of the fascist regime, the new world order. Um, You know, this is all part of it. It's the control grid. And this group of people, myself included, like to think that we're more intelligent. We call ourselves woke uh, truthers um, and we call everybody else, you know, um, asleep. We call them sheeple. I'd like to point out I don't do that, um, but mainly because I've realized this point. But yeah, it makes us feel part of a group. It makes us feel important. We feel like uh, the surveillance state will turn its eye on us. But that just makes us feel special because we're worth singling out, right? And no matter which of these stories you picked, if you think that your team is superior to another team because you watched some conspiracy videos on YouTube and believed them or didn't believe them or you were so smart that you refused to watch them altogether, then you're probably coming from a place of insecurity and fear, and that's never healthy. But back to the original question, why would the surveillance state, and those who control it, want to reveal it to the rest of the world?
1: There is a psychological phenomenon known as learned helplessness, And the experiments conducted way back decades ago that established this phenomenon were really quite terrible. Um, What they would do is take dogs, and for some of them at least, they would force them to endure a punishment. For example, they would receive electric shocks, and there was nothing they could do to prevent those shocks. For other dogs, there were actually little levers or a fence they could hop over that would stop the shocks. Now, later on, they took all of those dogs and they tested them again, but in environments where Every one of those dogs had the opportunity to avoid the shocks by taking some action. Now what was found was those dogs that had been forced to endure the shocks and had no way of stopping them, just kind of came to accept the shocks, even when there were actions that they could take which would stop them. There's a related study carried out with adults where they were trying to complete a task, except there was this distracting noise playing. Now, some of the adults had the ability to turn off that noise, whereas others did not. It was not under their control. And when you look at the performance, the adults who had the control to turn off the noise performed better, even when they didn't actually exercise that control. So they just let the noise play. But the knowledge that they could shut it off if they wanted to made them perform better.
0: Okay, so I realize we've talked about learned helplessness before, or have we? Have we talked about it? I know I've got it in one of my popcorn lobotomy videos and I may have even played exactly the same clip, although I think I played a Corbett Report clip, but the fact that I don't know what I'm doing shouldn't dissuade you from um, thinking that this is important. So could it be that the revelations that came from the Snowden leaks were a deliberate ploy to trigger learned helplessness in the population, en masse, if you will? These people perhaps have the knowledge that at some point you need to reveal what you're doing so that the public will accept it. And if you think about it, it's pretty unlikely that the powers that be intended for this to be hidden for perpetuity, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect that they eventually wanted to have it out in the open because it really can't function long-term any other way, can it? And you hear about this concept quite often, again, in conspiracy law, uh, where there's such a thing as predictive programming, where they put predictive storylines into popular media. And this is supposedly going to prepare the public for when the event actually does happen. A good example is there's a lot of videos showing things that point to the Twin Towers collapsing before it actually happened in real life. And whether or not you can believe in this or, or you don't, Um, I think there's some credence to the concept of conditioning the public to accept something. There seems to be embedded in all of our media an agenda of acceptance. And the more you become conscious of this idea, the more you kind of start to see it everywhere. These little baby steps that they give you to move you towards an end goal And it can't be a fluke that these conspiracy theorists seem to get the end goal quite accurate uh, most of the time. And it makes sense that they would manipulate people using story because as we've discussed and is at the heart of this entire podcast, story is a unit of information that is easily absorbed by our brain. So if someone tells you a story, Uh, you're more likely to accept ideas and knowledge from that story than you are if someone just tells you a list of facts. Unless, of course, you happen to be Jaime from Get Smart, and I've just lost the millennials there. There's no way they'll get that reference. Point being, it's entirely possible that the effect of this Big Brother story is to elicit learned helplessness. And we probably don't need science even to back this up. Let's just look inward for a second. What would you do if you came across some information and had to choose whether or not to blow the whistle? Let the world know. If you were Edward Snowden and and you had the information that he had in the papers and documents, would you do it? Would you blow the whistle? What thoughts would run through your mind and would this pervasive big brother mythos that we're talking about play a part in influencing your decision? And as you imagine that, I want you to hold that thought and really notice the types of things that come into your mind, the feelings and emotions. Is there fear there? Is there insecurity? Is there anger? What's actually playing into the decision that you make as you imagine yourself in Edward Snowden's place? And while you do that, Let's talk about the Panopticon.
2: 18th and 19th century English philosopher Jeremy Bentham designed a hypothetical prison called the Panopticon. The Panopticon is a circular building with cells built into the circular wall and a central observation tower. From the tower, you can see into every cell. And from every cell, you can see that the tower is there. But the tower is designed with blinds and shutters so that the prisoners can't see into it, they can only see that it's there. So at any moment, the prisoners can't be sure that they're being watched, but they know there's a pretty good chance that they might be. The name Panopticon is a reference to Argus Panoptes, the mythological Greek giant with a hundred eyes. And the upshot of this design, Bentham thought, is that the prisoners would bloody well behave themselves all the time, just knowing that you're visible, he thought, would be enough to
0: keep you in line, does it make you wonder sometimes what all these philosophers were sitting around doing? What's a philosopher doing inventing a prison? You know who's he inventing it for? Why is he thinking about how to exert control over people? Um, and this was you know one of the famous philosophers. I, I don't actually know how these guys rose to prominence. Did they just sit around thinking about prisons, then write a book? And uh, you know, it got it caught the eye of the elites, and they became like the elites' golden child, and they're adopted like a pet and told what to write. I don't know. I I imagine this stuff in my head when I try to think about it. it. You know, I can't quite imagine a situation where this kind of thing happens, but I guess we have it now, don't we? We have you know, say Sam Harris or Russell Brand or these types of guys who kind of rise to prominence and become the people who inform. Modern morality and the functions of modern society is Russell Brand a modern Jeremy Bentham? I, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me though because uh, you know the systems are so different that perhaps they're unrecognizable. But <clears throat> maybe in retrospect they're really not going to be, and we're just going to look back and see the same patterns throughout history. But that's completely by the by. Um, if, if that's even an expression. I've said it before. I don't know if that actually means anything, but anyway, we'll keep it. The panopticon's an interesting concept because, and I'm sure you could see where I'm going with this, but the idea that someone just believing that they are being observed is enough to keep them in line is a very powerful notion and something that um, it's very important that we're aware that the people in control have looked into this you know through the eyes of jeremy bentham and it's very important to acknowledge that the the people in control of our society the people with the most power have always been extremely aware of this concept of say the panopticon and they've always been very interested in researching human behavior and more importantly how to control human beings so next time you get one of these crazy conspiracy theorist types coming to you and saying you know they're trying to dominate the world or it, or whatever and you just think to yourself, "Hey, crazy conspiracy theorists, shut up!" You know, I'm I'm trying to eat cheezels here, and you're bothering me. Um, you know, read a white paper or two. They actually put their thoughts out there, uh, and and the research that's created. I'm sure some of it's kept secret, but a lot of it's very public. So you know, if you're interested in controlling human behavior yourself, maybe you want to get ahead in business or something. All the resources are there, and and the uh, the elites are out there funding it right now. So uh, you know. I guess it can be used for good as well as evil, or maybe, just maybe, we can use it to outsmart the elites with their own research. Wouldn't that be cool? They fund it, and we fuck them up with it. So I guess the real question is, how much of this Big Brother narrative that we're constantly fed in the media, and make no mistake, this is mainstream, how much of it is actually true? Is it possible that the capabilities of the NSA and the governments of the world are being exaggerated somewhat? And you're not going to get any answers from this podcast. I'm, I, there, there is no research that I'm aware of that will give you the answer to this. All we know is the myth that they put out. We don't know what's actually going on behind the scenes. One thing I do know, though, is I'm, uh, my job is to be a data analytics expert and I can tell you right now, the technology that I'm peddling in my job is not capable of doing this kind of stuff. Um, we're just touching the surface of AI, and uh, uh, you know, the AI technology that's in the products that I'm aware of at the moment that are in the market, uh, pretty primitive. You know, I mean, yeah, we can finally we can beat a human in chess. If this is the benchmark of the success of these types of systems, then I think we're talking about a very distant future where we can actually analyze data, uh, video data, voice data and textual data of the internet in real time in an effective way. Even with giant server farms, it's very hard to imagine being able to achieve the throughput required to analyze every piece of communication or media that's put out into the world. And yes, I know you can post a YouTube video and it scans it and converts it But it doesn't do it particularly quickly and YouTube has a massive server farm. So unless we're living in a society where the conspiracy law is correct and the elites have access to technology that's 30 years in advance of what they release to the public, and I guess that's possible, then they don't have the capability to really monitor us in the way that they say they are actually doing now. And that means we're living in a panopticon. Um, And I've seen a lot of suspect stories in the news media recently, the the mainstream very much so, about technologies that can read our minds and computers can understand them and all this sort of nonsense. Not to say it's not true, but um, it sort of came out of left field, don't you think? You know, we we went from uh, barely being able to beat a human at chess to suddenly now we can understand the structure and electrical activity of the human brain. Call me sceptical. I just don't think that we can map the human mind accurately enough and account for the variations between the structures of different people's brains to be able to read someone's mind. And why am I talking about mind reading? Because I think that's the next part of the story. Uh, You know, there's this concept of transhumanism. I'm not sure if you've heard the term, but the idea is that we'll start embedding microchips and robotic parts into our bodies and become. Superhuman, essentially, but it is being put out there, and it's something that I think you know. With all this science fiction and stuff that gets into our popular culture, I think there there is probably an effort to try and normalise the idea of being a cyborg or, you know, having chips underneath our our skin that augment our ability to think. You know, there's um, people out there making arguments that well, if you're staring at the screen of a cell phone uh, and Googling to get information. All you're really doing is cutting out the middleman of the phone and putting a chip in someone's brain and letting them Google directly, you know, at the speed of thought. Isn't that better? Well, yeah, okay. It is better if your goal is to Google, but then you do have a chip in your brain. And I think that's something that ethically we do need to consider. The point is that the narrative that's being fed to us is being used potentially like a panopticon. We need to be aware of this. And when you see a story in the media that tells you somehow that people are going to be able to read your mind soon, take it with a grain of salt. I don't know. Maybe it's all just revelation of the method and the conspiracy theorists are right. And we're already in a prison and we kind of always have been. So I guess the question is, what can we do And I think, as always, the answer lies in our own minds. Don't let people, especially uh, people with a vested financial interest in the outcome, convince you of ideas that are detrimental to your health. Even if they're establishing these ideas using science and logic and reason, you still need to decide for yourself how you want the world to be And then you can make it so simply by refusing to believe anything to the contrary. And I know I sort of position myself as a fairly logical, reasonable thinker, if you can call me a thinker. But when it comes to this, I think you just need to fuck logic and data and develop faith. And uh, it may sound strange coming out of my mouth, but this is one area where rationalism will fail you every time. You've got to dig your heels in and just believe in whatever serves you best. And don't pretend even to yourself that I'm asking you to do anything that you're not already doing. All your beliefs are irrational and self-serving. You argue for what you believe in. You don't believe whatever wins the argument. No humans do. I've been in this world for 43 years. I've never found a single person who doesn't have that fundamental flaw. It's called cognitive dissonance, and if someone challenges your worldview, you'll dig in your heels anyway. So why not just take control of that and design the very framework you are going to allow to influence how you live your life? Why not make it a positive, even if it is a naive view, of the place you live in and the people you interact with? Because if you don't control that narrative, someone else will. And you can be guaranteed they'll design a belief system that benefits them. Our power structures would certainly love to have the technology to monitor us 24-7. The Panopticon was designed in a way that they could actually do that. It was just a philosophical point that if you didn't have the resources to continue the monitoring, or the technology for that matter, that the inmates would behave themselves anyway and they'll give you all sorts of excuses marketing crime prevention good old fashioned maniacal control or well, that's probably not an excuse they'll use directly and you know maybe at some point they will be able to do this maybe they can right now but always remember the panopticon if you believe they can already do it then it doesn't matter if they can actually do it or not because if you buy into that you've already surrendered your freedom